0: Hello, and welcome to the Hormesis Podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about a book called The Radium Girls by Kate Moore. This is the story of the young women who worked in radium clock dial factories painting luminous dials. It is a story of both profound lack in radiation safety, communication, and justice for young women. And it's really written with the personal lives of the young women as forefront, but it's also superbly detailed and is really going to let us discuss the implications for both occupational and radiation safety. During this discussion, we will no doubt become upset about just how you know evil these corporations were. Perhaps these companies weren't evil, they were simply negligent. I, I have a hard time saying that, I'm not going to lie. Negligent is what they were at the beginning. By the end, they were evil. But we'll really try to stick to primarily what we can learn from their story as medical physicists.
1: Go ahead, Andrea. Thanks, Allison. Let's take a trip on a time machine for a second. Imagine it's, you know, around 1920, and you're from a very poor family, and you've had this opportunity to take a job where you're going to be making more than a lot of the men in your family. Most people in that situation wouldn't say no. But now imagine that this job involves working with a radioactive material and eating that material, working with your hands with that material, and doing this day in and day out with no protection. This is something that actually did happen. And the only difference is at the time, the people that were doing it didn't realize that it was dangerous. So what I'm setting the stage here for is describing the radium dial painters in the 1920s.
0: So during the height of World War I, there were young women, mostly from poor immigrant families, who were recruited to work in radium clock factories, painting luminous styles. There were multiple companies throughout the country and even the world who all had their own practices, and this is before the time of well-established occupational health safety, or especially radiation safety. During and following their employment They went from glowing with their opportunities to dying horrible, painful, mutilated deaths.
1: I think what I want to go to now is one of the quotes directly from the book, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So here in the room, daylight barred, one could see evidences of the luminous paint everywhere on the worker. There was a dab here and there on her clothes, on the face and lips, on her hands, as some of them stood there they fairly shone in the dark. So why were these women glowing? And the big reason is that one of the big practices that they did was a practice called lip pointing. And so these women were taught that the best way to get their paintbrushes to this tiny tip to paint the clock faces on these dials was to, as they referred to it, lip, dip, and point. So they would take their brush and they would kind of move it between their front teeth to make it into a point, dip it into the the paint, and then paint the dial. So then when they finished that, the paint would come off of, most of the paint would come off of the brush, and they would dip it again in their mouth. But all of the paint didn't come off, so they were ingesting a pretty good amount of this paint at the same time. And it's important to note that there were no official notices. No one said to the woman that they should be doing things to protect themselves. In fact, they had been doing things to encourage them to keep using the paint because it was safe. Okay, so another important thing to mention about this is that there were there were these dial painting factories in New Jersey and Illinois. And when some of these problems started occurring, there was no communication between the factories. They just kind of tried to cover it up and no one really said, hey, we're having issues. Some of these people are getting sick. Maybe you should look at what you're doing. But were there – so was it the case that nobody was using precautions or were there some people that were using precautions and some people that weren't? Right.
0: So at the beginning of the book uh, in 1917, they mentioned that in Europe at that point, no one was lip pointing anymore. And they don't say explicitly like they weren't lip pointing because it was dangerous. They just said that they weren't lip pointing. But then after these cases started in New Jersey, they stopped lip pointing in – Uh, The factory moved then to New York, um, but they didn't lip point in New York. But at that point, there were still factories in Illinois and elsewhere in the country, and they continued to lip point. So it was kind of left up to the companies to decide their own practices because there wasn't any sort of occupational practice guidelines.
1: And something I really want to point out is I've heard this story A 100 times, but I'd never heard the details. And one of the things that really struck me is the first women started working in these factories in 1917. And they continued working into these factories up until about 1928. So it was over a decade that these women were doing this day in and day out. And it took that long to come to light that this was a dangerous practice. One of these companies was still in business in 1978. Right so I guess I should have clarified the companies were still there but it was this practice of of lip pointing this is what caused all the problems this eating the paint essentially which is what they were doing one of the things that stood out to me so much is there's these descriptions of these women working in these factories and the people that are teaching them to do this have the paint on spatulas and they're eating it in front of these girls trying to say you know licking the spatula saying this is safe this is fine this is healthy this is good for you and so, it wasn't that these people were all ignorant. They were taught that this is safe and this is what you need to do and it's fine and you're going to be healthier by ingesting this paint. One
0: thing to keep in mind is that this is the time of Radiothor and you know radium was the cure-all and people were eating it, it or taking it as medicine, like a vitamin today, <laughs> more specifically. There are people who would take it three or four times every day and so – There's all this literature and advertising saying how great radium was for you.
1: But at the same time, so the company that was making these luminous watches, they were actually getting the radium and making the paint on their own. And the men who were doing this knew it was dangerous And, you know, they didn't protect themselves to the degree we would today because, you know, there was still this idea that small amounts were safe, but they wore lead aprons and they were cautious about it. And the women in the next building over who were painting these dials were being told it's completely safe and to keep ingesting it, which is interesting to me. And one thing to note is that
0: while the men were given safety precautions, they were very lax about actually following them. Right. Just as I think people tend to be, even today to some extent, if your health physicist doesn't remind you. I know I certainly feel fairly blasé about radiation dose. That being said, I'm not eating in the pet room or anything.
1: It's a different world. I think we're all a little more aware of the dangers. So Allison, these girls started working in 1917. When was the first time someone actually warned them that this was dangerous? Do you know? Right. So in 1918, the inventor of the paint who
0: worked actually with the Curies uh, previously, Sabin von Sachki, warned one of the painters not to lip point. And the extent of their conversation was, do not do that. You will get sick. You know, there weren't any official notices. This was said to only one woman. And, you know, she had to keep working and she kind of just looked at him weird and then kept doing it because that's what they were told to do. And as Andrea stressed, you know, it's not just this is what all the other girls were doing. It's this is what they were told to do. They were told it was safe. They were, you know, it was just very stressed that this is the right way to do this. So that was the only time that the women were ever warned. And a lot of them left the radium dial factory to get married or just to move on to different careers but a lot of them got very sick, and typically the first thing to happen was that their teeth would become very loose and fall out, and their jaw bones would just decay in their mouths and fall out. It was pretty horrific. Um, so they would go to dentists, of course, and the dentists would, you know, pull their teeth and stuff like that, and they would find that these sores wouldn't ever heal. And as they pulled teeth, it would actually accelerate the decay in their mouths. And so their first question was always, what do you do? Do you work with phosphorus? So one of the well-known occupational diseases was called fossy jaw, which is uh, a very similar necrosis of the jaw due to working with phosphorus. And so a lot of these early dentists and doctors that these girls were seeing were very suspicious that it was occupationally related and so a number of investigations were at least instigated but never really seen through until much later and far too late both you know at the local government you know federal government and even the companies investigated at least a little bit into these diseases so following Uh, the girls' employment for the Radium Dial Corporation. The girls, you know, moved on as they got married and entered other careers, but they found that they were getting very, very sick as time progressed. They began going to doctors and to dentists and found that, you know, they had all these wounds that wouldn't heal and all these kind of unexplicable, you know, ailments, including they kept being Diagnosed, for instance, with arthritis. And these are women in their 20s that have this supposedly severe arthritis, which just isn't, it would be unexpected, I suppose, for all these women to have arthritis in their 20s. And so the first case was brought in New Jersey in the 1920s, and the women ended up settling out of court, which was great for the women. They got Some of the women got some money to help with their mounting medical bills, etc. But it also really helped strengthen the company against future lawsuits. Then fast forward to the 1930s, and the women in Ottawa, Illinois, are starting to get sick. And they start their lawsuit. And it's their lawsuit that actually reached judgment and really made a large impact on society. But... As we start to talk about these legal cases, I think it's important to talk about, you know, what kind of defense did the company have?
1: So I think their biggest defense was that people didn't really fully understand radiation. And all these doctors seeing these problems, it was really easy for them to find doctors who would be on their side because the doctors had never seen this kind of poisoning before and they didn't really believe that something that people had been saying was healthy could cause problems. And then also we had these companies that were employing a lot of people making a lot of money in these little towns with these doctors that didn't really talk very much outside of their towns to people didn't want to disparage a company that was making money for people. So it was just a horrible environment to try to bring justice to this company.
0: In particular, in Ottawa, Illinois, you know, in the height of the Great Depression, this was one of the few companies that was still employing people And the whole town really turned against the women who were working there and trying to get justice for their illnesses. And it it just got really nasty. These women felt very alienated in their own communities, which were very tight-knit.
1: And one of the things that is really important about all of this is this really brought to light a lot of issues with workers' rights. So the environment then really wasn't the same as it is now where – workers are somewhat protected. So this was one of those cases that changed a lot of how we deal with these things. One of the strongest legal blocks that the companies had against these
0: women was the statute of limitations was only five months during the, the New Jersey cases. And as we already mentioned, years had passed since they'd stopped even working for the companies. And so one of the ways that the lawyers tried to get around this was to say we have 5 months from their diagnosis with radiation poisoning or radium poisoning as it was called in the book to file this lawsuit and to prosecute. However, in the in Illinois, the occupational disease diseases act was more forgiving. However, technically, poisoning wasn't included. And so their case was thrown out of the Supreme Court. Fortunately, they were suing the company in two different courts. First, in the, you know, normal, um, the normal courts. I'm a physicist, not a lawyer. (laughs) And secondly, in this kind of more of an occupational court. And so there were early symptoms that started even within a month of employment, which included, you know, mouth sores. Acne, fatigue, crackling, and stiff legs, blood abnormalities. In particular, a low white blood cell count was noted in a couple of cases. But these legal cases weren't started until much later based on much more advanced medical conditions. And one of the things that the company kept stressing was how late the effects were after leaving the employment. And that's why it couldn't be due to employment with their company. But, you know, those were just the most debilitating effects. But there were, you know, these warning signs all along.
1: But no one had ever seen anything like it. So there were warning signs to us looking back. But to these people at the time, some of the women, you know, made comments that, well, maybe I'm just getting older. But these women weren't that old. A lot of them started working in these factories when they were 14, 15, 16. So some of these women were in their early 20s saying, oh, I'm just getting older and it- – it, it's just crazy. So one thing
0: I wanted to talk about was kind of how these painters broke every rule in the radiation safety book. You know, they ate their lunch at their desks, you know, over the radioactive paint. They kept candy and chewing tobacco at their desks. And, and I mean, just forget, you know, eating near the radiation. They were eating the radioactive material while lip dipping.
1: Well, and also so- after their shift, they would go into the dark rooms and... And paint their faces and make faces at each other with their lips glowing. And
0: And the Ottawa, Illinois women were allowed to bring excess paint home. And so they'd go home and, you know, paint themselves even more and their families and bringing all that exposure into the house in addition to the workplace.
1: And especially in the early days when the company wasn't as careful about the excess because of how expensive it was. I mean, they would go home covered in this glowing dust from the paint. And some of the women would wear their nice clothes to work so that they would take on this glowing look and then they would wear those on dates later. So this wasn't just something that was on them while they were working. This is something that persisted and was just on them, you know, 24 hours a day pretty much, constantly exposing them to this radiation.
0: So what we really can take away from this book is how this case really led to greater... Safety standards across the board. I mean, most obviously, is that radium paint suddenly had safety standards. At one point, the company was selling radium paint to the general public. So you could just go buy some and paint whatever you wanted, which is kind of insane. But it was farther reaching than just that. When the Manhattan Project started, all of their safety standards came from what they learned from the dial painters. And then also the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was established.
1: One of the things even moving forward to 1978, the only safety information spread by the Luminous Processes firm in Ottawa, Illinois, which was one of the companies that came after the Radium Dial Corporation, was to not lit point, and you would be safe. That was the only safety information. Um, And they finally closed in 1978. So it almost seems like they had no idea how dangerous radium was. Well,
0: certainly the workers didn't. The uh, founder of Luminous Processes actually came from the original firm that was in Ottawa, Illinois. So he he certainly knew.
1: It was almost as if they didn't really believe it. I don't, I don't know. I just. I just have a hard time believing that people actually knew how bad this was and continued trying to pretend it wasn't. But it, it seems like that was the case, but it's just, it's crazy to me. I think that's one of the hardest things about this whole thing is just how, how crazy it all is and how long this happened and how many women and people were affected. So I guess then the question is like, what can we learn from this? What can we do? And um, I think one of the biggest things is just communication. I think one of the problems was, there wasn't communication across the country. There wasn't communication acro- across the globe. Because I think, as you mentioned, in Europe, there were radium dial painters, but they did not lip point, And they seemed to understand they had different techniques. They used these glass rods instead of these these brushes. There seemed to be this idea that it wasn't safe and it, no one was communicating about it.
0: And, of course, part of the reason that there wasn't communication was that it was totally up to the companies to protect their workers and to implement, you know, whatever methods they wanted to.
1: One of the things I just keep thinking about, and this is horrible, I'm not trying to just, you know, plug Astro and all these ideas, but the ROIL system, the Radiation Oncology Incident Learning System, um, it just, this reminds me of that so much, just the importance of these kind of systems where, you know, mistakes happen, and they are awful, and they shouldn't happen, but they do. And trying to hide them and bury them, just compounds these problems even more and makes situations like this possible. And so I feel like, you know, people should be talking about mistakes more freely. I don't know how you do that in our society where everyone's scared of getting sued. I don't know. But yeah, it's just – that's all I kept thinking of when I was reading a lot of this, like how does this apply now?
0: Yeah, so one of the things related to that that I thought about was that we really just have to communicate, you know, every time we test – a new drug. You have to communicate negative results and negative side effects. Like, that's just, that's our job, you know? That's good science. But, I mean, that's not purely on the scientists. That's also on journals, you know? Journals don't find a negative paper as exciting, I would imagine, but it's still just so important. So, as we mentioned, the doctors of these women were just totally out of their depth, but There is just this lack of communication between the doctors and the women. For instance, one doctor diagnosed one of the women with syphilis. And when she died, that was listed as her cause of death. But the doctor never actually told her that was her diagnosis. Which, one of the things in the book is very good about getting into the kind of personal details and really lets you get to know the women. And all of her family and friends were like, you know, that's just not possible. She wasn't sexually active, and therefore she couldn't have gotten syphilis. And one thing that was truly terrifying to me is that she had been previously tested, and the test was negative. And the second test was actually performed incorrectly by a doctor who just didn't know what he was doing. And that led to her misdiagnosis and wrong, you know, cause of death, which is just Crazy to me.
1: Well, that was kind of like the whole culture, then too, though. I mean, you know, they didn't tell her, but that was kind of their running theme. Like, the one really chilling scene from this book is when they're describing the women in the courtroom, and the lawyer asks the doctor if her condition is terminal. And the doctor kind of looks at her and doesn't respond. And the not responding says it to her for the first time. This is a woman who is just very, very ill did not realize that her condition was fatal. And the kind of idea at the time was that they didn't want to tell people that because they thought they would decline faster. The women couldn't talk to each other about what was going on in that sense because they didn't really know. They didn't realize how sick they were until they were really sick. So that was an interesting part of the whole thing as well.
0: I do think one thing that science has done a good job of improving – is watching out for vulnerable and marginalized populations. So these were poor women with very little education. Most of them left school in grade school, you know? They're typically born to immigrants. And, okay, this really got me. The youngest worker age mentioned in the book was 11 years old.
1: Right. And, like, what makes an 11-year-old decide that she needs to go out and work in a factory? I mean, they, they're they vulnerable from the beginning,
0: And these dial painting factories paid really well for factory work. You already mentioned that they were making similar wages to what the men and their families would have been making.
1: Right. Yeah, one of the things that was crazy, too, is that these women, they spent a lot of their money on, you know, some luxuries because they were making more money than anyone around them, and they were proud of it. And then in the end, they worked so hard and – got this money. And some of them were were really good with their money and saved it. But then they ended up spending it all on the medical expenses. So it was just such a, a devastating situation in so many ways. It, I mean, this company just took everything from them. Their, their health, everything. I mean, it's just sad. So I don't want to be callous. But I do
0: think that there were some overreactions by society. So obviously, following these cases and the publicity of the cases There was a very strong push to limit the use of radium as a medicine and everything else. And there's no doubt that the way it was used previously as just a cure-all, take it three times a day, that's terrifying. But today it's actually used to treat bone cancers. As they discovered, radium is a bone-seeking agent, which is great if you have widespread metastatic disease in your bones.
1: No, I don't think anything that you say that minimalizes the response to this is appropriate because I think the response was appropriate. So it's important to note that the improper use of radiation is bad and it leads to bad outcomes for everyone and it's dangerous. But there are some really important safe ways to use radiation. And radiation was and is a very important way of treating cancer. Um, For example, radium is now used today to treat bone cancers. And all of this was occurring at a time when radium needles were commonly used to treat multiple types of solid tumors. So it was used medically at the time, and it still is. So it's not to say that all radium's bad, all radiation's bad. What we're trying to say is that not appreciating and respecting that this is dangerous is what's bad. I mean, I'm sure it means different things to everybody, but to me, one of the big points that this is saying is we don't know what we don't know. So erring on the side of caution, I don't necessarily think is bad, especially considering all the bad things that can happen when you don't. <laughs> Please let us
0: know your thoughts on our Reddit page, reddit.com slash r slash Hermesis and subscribe at our website, Hermesispodcast.com. At this time, we'd like to open the floor to our colleagues, Sean and Nick. Do you guys have anything you want to add to this conversation?
2: Yeah, I I, I wanted to sort of bring back this thing that I think is usually attributed to aviation, but I think it's in um, a lot of fields, that that regulations are written in blood. And this is an example of an unfortunate time where we didn't know the dangers of things we were dealing with. And then when we did, when some people were aware of those dangers, they went through efforts to hide it so that they could turn a profit or save themselves from the things that they had done to others. And it took the public hearing about the suffering of these women and similar cases for real lasting changes to, to come about. And uh, some of the positives that you can look at from these, like you mentioned, there are things like um, OSHA regulations and, and worker protections and stuff. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say that it was worth these women's lives and their futures to have those regulations come around. You kind of, wish that we could look at these as examples of how we did it wrong. And we found our mistake after it was too late to do anything. And maybe it would be nice if we can find the mistakes that might be coming and try and build our regulations around the errors we might be making in the future, instead of trying to fix things we already did to kill people and maim them and ruin their lives.
0: So I actually wanted to go the opposite direction, which is probably not good now that you said that so nicely. Um, But do you guys ever worry about the negative societal effects that a book like this could have? I know, for instance, that my parents, who I consider to be progressive, well-educated people, don't like the idea of nuclear power, which is something that I think is a no-brainer to some extent, if it's done correctly.
1: I think that just feeds into the whole, you know, there's this anti-science movement right now, and it just, it scares me. People are very quick to judge things without trying to fully understand them. I I don't know how you fix that other than just talking about it and trying to be open and honest about things.
2: Yeah, I think that open and honest is the solution to it, and I think that the best way to address those concerns is i don't know if it works but talking about you know the evidence to support it the reasons we know now why it's safe things like you know that there's more radioactive material released from coal burning power plants than from nuclear power plants just pure baseline numbers because of the amount of coal that it has to burn the amount of radioactive materials in it. Things like that, I don't know if it helps. But I think that at least discussing them helps. I don't think that not talking about these things would help. And I think that what's so interesting about this book is that it didn't just focus on the other tellings of this story. There's been other books about um, the plight of these women, but They've never actually really been about the plight of these women and their stories. It's been novels written about the effects that these cases have had on regulatory environments and and the things that we have learned about radium poisoning by studying these women, but not really discussions of their lives and, and how it affected them specifically and humanizing the people involved in the story um while i think also demonizing the the employers of these women um some would say very rightfully so uh given the um the actions that they're presented as having taken in the books so there are a couple things that i wanted to
3: address with what you just said the 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 first thing, you know, you're talking about regulations being written in blood and how it took us a long time to learn about these dangers. I I disagree. I think it goes back to what uh, Allison and Andrea were talking about, where there's a lack of communication, there's a lack of understanding, but the knowledge was definitely there. I mean, Marie Curie died before a lot of these side effects really started to show themselves. These watch dial painters were working well into World War II. After World War II, you know, we're we're talking about a long period of time where, really, what this was was just a complete willing blindness. So you know, I, I, I'd say negligence and, and willful wrongdoing on the part of the company. Um,
1: the company and went on its way to rebut everything. They would rebut everything. If they said, "You know, it's the radium," they said, "Oh, well, we use a different type of radium here."
3: Yeah, but it's the same way. It's the same way that something like a company like Apple or Nike works today, right? Where we talk about, "Oh, well, but our batteries are made in the most eco-friendly, humane battery factories in China." Like that's bullshit. That does not happen. Like when we buy our new smartphone or this laptop that I'm recording this on, the battery that this runs on is running on rare earth minerals mined by a family in China who grows up next to the mine and not in a safe condition. That we know that's true. Like those things happen. It's the same thing that Radium Dial Corporation did, where they're saying, No, it's got to be something else or it's not how ours works. We've briefly alluded to the person. There was a, there was a effectively millionaire at the time who had a love affair with radium. He thought it would make him live forever. He drank like a liter and a half of radiothor all at once and developed a massive stomach ulcer and died as a result. And even that wasn't, that was in like the early fifties, like. I don't know it's one of these things where the public had a, a sort of a complicit silence and a complicit agreement that the successful company couldn't be deceiving them and I think that that's a you know that's something that we just do when you see success i mean look at the <laughs> let's talk about look at the u s presidency today when we perceive success it you know we tend to follow it and we tend to believe it we give it the the leaner truth. And, um, you know, it's, we believe it. I don't know. It, I, I, have been looking through my copy of the radium girls and it said in like the fourth chapter in 1912, there were doctors already testifying, saying that the deleterious effects of radium are well known. And the radium dial corporation didn't start making radium dial watches until 1917 and continued into the 50s.
1: But it's still going back to, like, the people that were making this paint seemed to also know that it was dangerous and took, you know, even if minimal, they took steps to protect themselves. So then why didn't they care about the women who were painting the watches? I don't know. It's very... Mm-hmm. It, the whole thing it's there's just so many unanswered questions
3: that I have about this whole thing. Well, sure. I mean, uh, that's not the objection I'm raising so much. Uh, like, yes, they, they acted and poor conscience and bad faith um but really the the statement of you know well the regulations we learned this the regulations should have been there but it wasn't in our our public consciousness
2: well i would i guess the regulations i mean are the workers rights regulations that workers have a right to a safe work environment and to be protected Mm -hmm. and that you can't Knowingly poison your worker and it be all right. um The tragedy is that that should have counted as murder, but the courts are not were not equipped and are likely not equipped at this time to address it like that. Yeah. but effectively it is. it's a callous disregard for other humans' lives, and we'd like to think that as a society, we're beyond the point where you can be callous with another person's life.
3: Well, so effectively, it's either manslaughter or second degree murder. You're right? Maybe, you know, by the modern definition, at least. Um, you know, callous disregard would mean, uh, their gross negligence that led to the death of somebody would be at least manslaughter or, um, an act where you were using a dangerous substance and failed to take precautions that I could see as a second degree murder charge. You know, it's, Let's move on from the regulation bit because we could sit here and bore people with legalese all night. But the second part of what, do, what effect does this book have on popular culture and people's perceptions of radiation and the dangers associated with it, I haven't heard as much from this as I have from other more cinematic expressions of science. Um, I've had so many people ask me about the, the HBO series Chernobyl and it's it's one of these things where I don't know if the people who are picking up the book that says the radium girls are people who are already skeptical about radiation. I think they're the people who are typically well-informed and have a relatively good idea of what the science behind it is. I, I do know that there is a Broadway musical about it. I think the book even makes note of it. And I would be curious how people walking out of that performance would uh, describe the harms and hazards of radiation.
0: Yeah, they mentioned two plays in the book as well, which I was hoping to get my hands on a copy of the screenplay, but my favorite used bookstore did not have them. My library didn't have them either. (laughs) So at the back of Radium Girls, there's also a guide to if this is for your book club, you know, some discussions you can have. And one of the questions that really interests me was as follows how do you believe the radium companies and the press would have reacted differently to the scandal had the workers been male considering the time period and how the women's gender
1: help and hinder their case they certainly wouldn't blame syphilis i promise you that
3: i feel like this is like a landmine for nick and i to try and chime
2: in on
0: yeah i think you guys should have to answer this one
2: i'm gonna mute my microphone I think it could go either way. I, I think that playing historical what-ifs is impossible. But I could see it going either way, that the press took up the mantle of the, the plight of these women uh, when it did choose to cover them. Uh, and that may have not been something they would do for male workers. Um, but at the same time, a male worker probably would have been able to have more access to their physicians more access to their representatives of power that could potentially help them in this. Uh, And it's, I think you look at how the uh, companies themselves treated their workers, the workers who were working on preparing the paints were the, the, the way it was described in the book, they're predominantly male and they took precautions or were instructed to take precautions. and, I think that shows you right there how the company felt about them. I don't know if we can say how society would have felt about them and re- would have reacted to them. I certainly don't think I am an authority on, on how society would react to anything.
0: I agree with you. I think that the press worked harder, or, well, had a more heartbreaking story with the pictures of the mothers who couldn't pick up their children because their children weighed more than them. They're young children. But I I agree that I think that the company would have treated the workers better had they been male. I don't know about more access to the doctors and stuff like that, because these doctors just had no idea what they were doing.
3: Yeah, this is... uh, To me, I... I I think it's pretty fair to say that the, the... had these workers been men, there would have been a little bit more care. At the same time, we think of coal miners. Um, and, you know, Nick was talking about it's not fair for you to poison your own workers. I mean, coal miners didn't have respiratory protection until the 70s. It's it's a...
1: My grandfather worked for the railroad, and he was out spraying these really awful chemicals to try to kill plants along the, the trail where they were putting the rail. And he and a lot of his friends died of cancer. Um, before I was born, shortly before I was born, so early 80s, late 70s. So stuff like this happened in other industries, too, where there was just this maybe neglect, maybe misunderstanding, I don't know.
3: Yeah. Yeah, this is just, you know, it's, uh, since we keep telling you go to Reddit, go to Reddit, check out late-stage capitalism. That's what this is, is, uh, you know, when there's a buck to be made, if you're not the one who has to put down your life, eh. Well, somebody else can take that risk, yeah. Especially if it's a if it's a an uncertain risk, if it's sort of a nebulous risk, like radiation was, still is in many many circles. You know, we're a little provocative with our hormesis title, but people who say, "Well, it's not that big of a deal," really, how do you know? How much thought have you put into that? How much research have you read saying that you know this isn't this isn't a big a big issue? Um,
2: I did also want to go back to the. Um question that was brought up of whether we think this book makes radium or radiation out to be the enemy. And I think, you know, going back to the late-stage capitalism comment and such, that no, this book primarily points out that the enemy is the people and the radiation was the way in which the company, but really the people working for the company, brought harm to others. And it. I don't think it makes the radiation out to be the the evil in this, I think it very clearly points that finger at the people who have some presumed agency in what goes on.
0: I agree, I think that's one of the things this book did very well was not being kind of a fear monger of radiation, which I think happens a lot anytime you try to talk about radiation safety and stuff for the general public.
3: yeah, I think this goes straight to the people. I was very interested in the way that the radium was discovered to be the actual culprit in this book. We talk about this being an unknown hazard at the time, or a relatively unknown, poorly understood hazard. Um, The girls had many other conditions that they were being diagnosed with, so how do you go ahead and prove that this is actually a radiation problem? I thought it was brilliant the way that they did this. They went about and they set up almost like a breathalyzer for radon because the radium they were ingesting decayed into radon. And had all the girls tested by putting a big glass ionization chamber in front of their face, they blew into it. The ionization chamber measured how much exposure was being generated just from them breathing in. It's so scary thinking of the levels that they're reporting. I think they're generating, you know, like tens of millirem when they're exhaling over a course of an hour. I mean... Uh I, this book this book had a lot of really uh, visceral emotions for me. They' like it 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 brought out a lot of these sort of sensory evocations when they first started describing lip pointing. We all have heard this story before. We heard it in the you know the first week of graduate school talking about radiation physics and why it's important to have medical physicists. And just, I almost felt like I could feel the grains of grit between my teeth and just that sensation of, oh my God, that's like the the first cut out of a thousand that's going to drop this giant tree. Like, it, yeah, it's not. And then going from that sensation at the beginning of the book to the middle of the book when they describe, like, we finally shown definitively that there's radium in these girls' bodies, in their bones, in their lungs, in their soft tissue, that's causing all these problems, that's causing the necrosis, that's causing the sarcomas, that's causing the mouth sores, that's causing the lymphomas they're seeing. It was it, it was quite a journey to go through. So I thought it was a great book. I thought it had some great science in it.
1: I know I remember, you know, reading this book and emailing you guys, this this book really brings out a lot of really hard to deal with emotions you, you go from sadness to anger to frustration to outrage and I remember you know just kind of doing my own research on it and finding out that there were groups of people that want these watches almost as collectibles that they're searching for these radium watches and that just horrified me completely like absolutely utterly shocked and horrified me like I feel like all those watches should be found and destroyed I don't think anybody should want them as souvenirs it's just I don't
3: know I would take the contrary position, not just to be contrarian. I, I, I think that that's important for us to keep in mind. You know, we've got to remember the mistakes that got us to where we are today. Nick's regulations written in blood has a fair point here in that we remember and we honor these people who did something that was dangerous without knowing by keeping, you know, What's your intent of that are you are you taking that object to glorify it because ah haha, there's this like crazy thing that we did, and we killed a thousand people, and it was great, or is it I have this watch, I'm gonna look at it when I think about is what I'm doing right now better for whoever it is I'm doing it for, like when I'm taking a look at a plan and it's four o'clock on a Friday and I say, there's a problem with this plan, we could make it better. Should I go inconvenience to people who made the plan? You know, could I look at this watch and say, yeah, there's a reason I'm doing this?
1: I think the people I think- that I was referring to were not as philosophical as you. Maybe not. So I'm one of those callous people. I really <laughs> I so
0: I really want fiesta wear. So like those old dishes that are radioactive. Every time I go to a thrift store, I always ask, do you have any fiesta dishes? Because I think that's awesome. But whenever yeah. you talk, I feel like a terrible person.
1: No, I just I just feel like somebody died for that. Like, oh, absolutely. I don't know the history of Fiestaware. estuary, you know, uranium glass, same thing. I don't know if it was the same kind of like death toll as these watches. But like to me, especially after reading this book, all those watches represent is just death and needless death and horrific death. And I don't know to even want any piece of that is horrifying to me. I don't know what my point is. My point is just I'm horrified.
2: Sean's point of remembering when you look at it that people did die to make this is perhaps worth reminding us as well of, well, another point that Sean brought up, that there's a lot of products we use today that were made this century, you know, in the modern era that a lot of people died to bring to us that we don't necessarily think about because they don't have a book written about them telling us of their tortured lives.
0: So one of my big like, pet peeves on the subject is fast fashion. So in, I think it was 2012, there was a single clothing factory that burned to the ground and killed 1,200 people in an hour. Like, same death count as these watches, one hour.
3: Probably more. It was 1,200 people who died from this?
0: It was one building.
3: No, 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 but from radium.
0: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, no.
3: So, like... You're talking about a disaster that is greater than what happened from all of this negligence. Maybe not in terms of total effect, but in terms of absolute life toll.
0: So what we didn't talk about was the extreme impact on the environment. Mm. So these factories, after they understood what was going on, they went back and surveyed these towns, not just the factories, the towns, and found that. The dose that everyone in these towns was getting was just crazy. And the government had to come in and spend millions of dollars cleaning up these towns because the companies wouldn't do it. And, you know, they found just incidents of cancer to be way higher than normal. It's one of those few cases where they actually did find an environmental effect on people, which is really kind of unheard of.
3: Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, so I'm sorry. I must have derailed you from your point because I think, you know, you're you're talking about this these other m- massive disasters in this context of of what's happening. So I like how did you want to tie that in?
0: Don't buy H&M. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Just, you know, like like um Nick was saying is that there's all these things that we buy today. It's easy to say like, "Oh, well you don't want to buy these watches because it led to a massive loss of life." but that's everything you buy today like pretty much everything we manufacture today is made under similar conditions it's not radiation but it's
3: it's some type of toxin
0: absolutely yeah exactly
1: i think it it's i don't know just i think more cuz we know the effects of radiation when mishandled and like the horrific deaths these women faced it just i mean it is like a horror movie You're reading some reading the, the accounts in this book and just you know, you see it in the beginning when they're talking about these women getting these jobs and what they're doing, and you, and you know what's coming, and it's just this slow-motion, awful thing. None of them died quick. This was, like, a long, drawn-out, awful, horrible...
2: Hmm. Yeah. It, it makes me wonder, then, is this... <sighs> because we didn't expect people from their class to die this way, that it's so impactful. And that's all right when it's a bunch of people across the world that we never get to see. That's that's what this makes me feel. That the that is fundamentally it's that that's getting a little bit too deep. But that's what it feels like, right? That, that
1: if people were like dying in that way and I knew about it, I wouldn't buy that product either. I don't know.
3: Well, I mean, it's like when you recycle something. So uh, I was listening to one of the podcasts that I I normally do. I think it was. 99% Invisible episode 341 National Sword. They talk about how recycling even, you know, before these Chinese tariff wars came into effect, when you recycled things, it all went over to China. And what you would see are these pictures of whole families with young kids, you know, 5, 6 up to 12 years old. They'd sleep next to their machine that would reprocess recycled waste. And they're covered in soot. They, you know, like, they're just there's no way it's good for them. There's no way. But it's not even us purposefully purchasing a product. It's a product and an act that we think is like, oh, well, this is good for the environment. Me putting this glass bottle or this plastic container into this recycling bin is a good thing, or me purchasing this made out of 100% post-consumer recycled material is a good thing. Well, no, there's a human toll associated with this because of how we do this you know it's when it's out of sight and out of mind you know kind of the way that these workers were you know they're women they're they're young girls who got a great opportunity that they would never have had like it very much is the same type of mental circumstance that we see in a lot of different ways that we have evolved adapted grown as a society globalization so i don't know one last thought. One last thought. I did think that it was very ironic that uh one of the main uses of radium tubes, I mean, obviously there's sarcomas and basic tongue cancers that were commonly treated with brachytherapy, but uh cervix cancer is one of the classic brachytherapy sites. Radium was used for that quite commonly, and I, I think that you know, while radium Went on to kill and poison the people of these communities and kill a lot of these workers who were mostly female. At the same time, it has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And it's something that I think we overlook a little bit that, you know, we talk about radium, radon and radium being such a, a terrible hazard and a risk. We try and get rid of it. We try and mitigate it in our hospitals now. But it, it's played a huge role in our profession, uh, at least as therapy physicists, maybe not. For you, Allison, as whatever it is you do, but <laughs> um, I don't know. yeah, I don't know it it's it, I, I found that sort of dichotomy very difficult to kind of get to jive together. so
0: I hope you enjoy this episode of Hermesis podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas of how we can carry forward the impact of this book as medical physicist, please let us know at our reddit page redditcom r Podcast, and subscribe at our website hermesispodcast.com This has been Allison, Andrea,
3: Sean, and Nick.
0: See you next time.